One of the things that I have been bad at in the past is spending my tax refund before it actually arrives in the mail. So I do the taxes, and then I know we're going to get however many thousand dollars. And so in years past, in the months of February and March, you know, we would buy stuff. It was kind of like winning the mini lotto, you know, because you had a few thousand dollars coming in. We would always give some of it back to God, and then the rest was blow money. And this worked out great until a few years ago when the basement flooded. Remember last week I told you about my sump pump that failed? Well, today I want to tell you the rest of the story. See, we moved into the house and the sump pump failed on the heels of an ice storm in which we had been without power for several days. So it's 29 degrees, there's no heat in the house, and I'm knee deep in water in my basement, barefoot, trying to get things out. And so I got this gas-powered uh, uh, a, a water pump, gas-powered water pump from Lowe's, the last one they had. And so I hook it up, and I'm climbing in and out of the uh, basement window because I don't want to track water all through the house in 29-degree weather. And in one of the times trying to get in, I felt something pop. <clears throat> I suffered a hernia in a place at which it's not polite to discuss at church. So I go to the doctor's office. Now I've got two whammies, right? I've got a sump pump that's failed, cha-ching, water damage, cha-ching. Now I'm in the doctor's office. And he says, Mr. Vanderpool, we're going to have to do surgery, cha-ching. And I think to myself, no problem. I've got that IRS refund coming. And then like a movie scene in slow motion, I realize that money's already spent. No. And it was just terrible, okay? My experience is not uncommon, is it, in America? For the past two decades or more in American life, everything about American life has been predicated upon borrowing. You go to college, you borrow. You get a job and you need a reliable car to get to that job, you borrow. You need some clothes, you charge it. Uh, you need to take your boyfriend or girlfriend out, you charge it because later on you'll be making more money. It's no problem. Except for Dave Ramsey and a few other cranks, most financial experts over the past two decades have said, this is good. This is healthy. These are financial experts. And they've talked about smart debt. Isn't that an oxymoron? Smart debt as opposed to dumb debt. We all know it's dumb to have dumb debt, but smart debt's not bad. And Chase, Chase Bank even has a program where you, as you make charges, you can pay off in full the diapers that you bought, but you can, at a slightly lower interest, pay over time the larger purchases, like the baby crib or car seat that you couldn't pay all at once. And that's considered smart. And so we have become a nation of borrowers. As long as there's been human history, there have been lenders and borrowers. And I want to read to you today a statement that comes in the category of some things never change. And so if I could get that on the screen, it's in a PowerPoint. Some things never change. Uh, the budget, well, maybe they don't have it up there. There we go. All right, leave it right there. The budget should be balanced. The treasury should be refilled. Public debt should be reduced. The arrogance of the officialdom should be tempered and controlled. And assistance to foreign lands should be curtailed lest blank become bankrupt. People must again learn to work instead of living on public assistance. Any guess to where this quote comes from? Ding. Let's go to the next slide. 
Rome. This was said, next slide, by Cicero in 55 BC. Some of you are like, dude, that's America. I know, it's so freaky weird. Okay, President Obama has said on two different occasions, we're out of money. Smart people in America have said, we're out of money. And so it seems painfully obvious to, quote, some people that low taxes, large entitlements, large military spending that is financed primarily by borrowed money won't work in the long haul. And I would submit to you it it won't work in the long haul, which is why a lot of Americans right now are a little nervous. They're a little scared. And for the first time in, in a generation or more, people are beginning to wonder if things will actually be worse for their children and worse for their grandchildren. But the good news is God has a lot to say about money. Um, If we had listened to what God says and we had heeded what God says as a nation, we'd actually be better off today. If we had actually listened and heeded to what God says about money, we'd be better off as individuals and families today. When God launched the very first nation, Israel, the very first people who were going to live according to his ways, he made a promise to them. And it's found in Deuteronomy chapter 28. And and I want you to see this promise. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 12. All right? This is a group of people who had been slaves for over 400 years, but they're going to live according to God's ways. And God says this to them, the Lord will send rain at the proper time from his rich treasury in the heavens and will bless all the work you do. You will lend to many nations, but you will never need to borrow from them. In other words, you want a sign that God's pleased? You want a sign of God's blessing? You want to know you're doing things right financially? Guess what? You're a lender, not a borrower. That's a ding, big indicator that things are as they should be. God also says there's another sign. Uh, and that's found in Proverbs chapter 22, verse 7. It says this, Just as the rich rule the poor, so the borrower is servant or slave to the lender. Um, Proverbs 22, verse 7. Just as the rich rule the poor, so the borrower is slave To the lender. What's the word used there of a person who borrows? Slave. Who in human history has ever aspired to be a slave? Mommy, when I grow up, I want to be a slave. No, it never happens. Nobody wants to be a slave. All right? So the sign that things are not going well, the sign that you're not living according to God's ways is that you're a slave to debt. And so here's the principle today. The lighter the load, the greater the buoyancy. The lighter the load, the less debt, the less weight you have in your financial boat, the greater buoyancy your boat has. The more debt, the more weight you have in your boat, the more vulnerable you are to even small storms and small waves. And so we want to get out of debt and we want to have greater buoyancy. I could give a message today that was all about like sowing and reaping. Well, if you're in debt, you just reap what you sowed. That would be encouraging, wouldn't it? No, it would be terrible. Instead, today, I want to remind you that God cares. And I want to remind you that God cares for you. And I want to remind you that God stands ready to act and help, even if you have sold yourself into slavery to Bank of America, to Chase, to the Student Loan Corporation of America, to Toyota, or the Ford Motor Company, or yes, even Visa. God cares, God cares about you, and God is prepared to act. And to do that, I want to share two stories 
from the book of 2 Kings. 2 Kings chapter 4. And that's where we're going to be today. 2 Kings chapter 4. These two stories are from the life of Elisha. Elisha was the assistant and apprentice to Elijah. I know that's like, those names are so similar. I know, but they're different people. Long story, we'll get into it another day. But Elisha served as a prophet to the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom, at a time when most people worshipped Baal. Right? So most of the people at this time weren't doing a whole lot of things, quote, God's ways. And so a lot of his messages weren't very well received. And so that's where we pick things up in chapter 4, verse 1. One day, the widow of a member of the group of prophets came to Elisha and cried out, My husband who served you is dead, and you know how he feared the Lord, but now a creditor has come, threatening to take my two sons as slaves. Josephus later writes that this woman is actually the wife of Obadiah. I don't know if that's true or not. But Obadiah had been a servant to King Ahab who had taken a hundred prophets and hidden them so that King Ahab wouldn't kill them. Apparently what this man did is he borrowed money to pay for the food and pay for the, 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 uh, to keep those guys and their, and their families in hiding. So he racked up a pretty substantial visa bill. Well, the guy dies, and his widow now needs to pay up, and the creditors are coming. And they had a practice at this time, uh, which was real simple. You couldn't pay, we take you. We just put a little thing around your neck and come on along, welcome to Slaveryville, and you can work it off the rest of your life. Ding, thanks for borrowing from Chase Manhattan. I mean, <laughs> that's what they did. When the Israelites came back from their period of exile... Being in debt was so common that 20% of the population were debt slaves. One out of five people couldn't repay the debt so bad that the creditor had come and made them into a debt slave. One out of five. All right? So this woman has found herself in a typical, typical situation of the day. Well, let's see what unfolds, verse 2 and following. What can I do to help you, Elisha asked. Tell me, what do you have in the house? Nothing at all except a flask of olive oil, she replied. And Elisha said, borrow as many empty jars as you can from your friends and neighbors. Then go into your house with your sons and shut the door behind you. Pour olive oil from your flask into the jars, setting each one aside when it's filled. So she did as she was told. Her sons kept bringing jars to her, and she filled one after another. And soon every container was full to the brim. Bring me another jar, she said to one of her sons. There aren't any more, Mom. They told her, and then the olive oil stopped flowing. When she told the man of God what had happened, he said to her, Now sell the olive oil and pay your debts, and you and your sons can live on what is left over. She used what she had, she got help, and God intervened. And this woman had not bowed down to Baal. She had remained faithful to the Lord God. All right? There's a second story that follows right after it. And it has to do with an older, wealthy woman. She has means. She has money. She's not a debt slave. In fact, she's a lender. One day, Elisha went to the town of Shunan. A wealthy woman lived there, and she urged him to come to her home for a meal. And after that, whenever he passed that way, he would stop there for something to eat. So what this woman decided to do was, Hey, Elisha, whenever you're in the neck of the woods, this room right up here, this is your room. You can stay with us. You can enjoy my hospitality, our hospitality. We have plenty to share 
for a prophet of the living God. Don't worry about any time you're in this neck of the woods, you're taken care of. All right? She said to her husband, I'm sure this man who stops in from time to time is a holy man of God. Let's build a small room for him. Okay, verse 11. One day Elisha returned to Shunem, and he went up to the upper room to rest, and he said to his servant Gehazi, Tell that woman from Shunem I want to speak to her. And when she appeared, Elijah said, Tell her, we appreciate the kind concern you've shown. What can we do for you? Can we put in a good word to the king or the commander of the army? He's fishing around. You know, this is an amazing act of hospitality. I'm so thrilled. I'm so grateful that when I come here, I have a place to stay. I have stuff to eat. Thank you for the hospitality. Look, I know the king. He may not like me. I know the commander of the army. He may not like me, but I can put in a good word for you. I mean, they know I'm a prophet of the living God. And she's like, no, 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 no. No, I'm good. I'm good. I have everything I need. Well, the story unfolds a little more. And Gehazi discovers that she and her husband have never had children. So Gehazi tells Elisha, hey, they got no kids, boss. Oh, simple. So Elisha says, Tell, uh, uh, next time this year, verse 16, next year at this time, you'll be holding a son in, her, in your arms. Notice her response, verse 16. No, my Lord, she cried. Oh, man of God, don't deceive me and get my hopes like, like that. So obviously this woman's been burned in life, and she's a little skittish about trusting. And when he promises a son, she says, whoa, uh-uh, don't open that door. Don't go down that road. Don't get my hopes up. And sure enough, a year later, a son is born to her. Well, he grows up, and I don't know at what age, but that's where thing, the story takes a turn, and that's verse 18. One day, when her child was older, he went out to help his father, who was working with the harvesters. Suddenly, he cried out, My head, my head hurts! His father said to one of the servants, Carry him home to his mother, and the servant took him home. And so there on the porch of their house, this boy or young man is in her arms, Breathing, probably labored, and dies around noon. I told that man not to make any promises. Well, she has the body of her son taken up to the prophet's room, and off she goes, because she's going to talk to that man of God. And sure enough, that's verse 27 and following. Uh, but when she came to the man of God at the mountain... Uh, she fell to the ground before him and caught hold of his feet. Gehazi began to push her away, but the man of God said, Leave her alone. She's troubled, and the Lord has not told me what it is. Then she said, Did I ask you for a son? And didn't I say, Don't deceive me and get my hopes up? I mean, you can hear the bitterness in these questions. And then Elisha said to Gehazi, Get ready to travel. We're going. <laughs> okay, take my staff and go. Don't talk to anyone. And when you get there, put my staff on the boy. Well, he runs ahead, and she basically says, uh-uh, I'm not leaving until something's done. And so Elisha picks up and goes back with the, the woman from Shunem. And on their way there, Gehazi comes back to say, um, hey, boss, still dead. <laughs> still dead. Don't know if that's good or bad, just saying, staff, the whole thing, whoo, hocus pocus, you know, and, 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 nothing. So Elisha gets there, uh, Verse 32, when Elisha arrived, the child was indeed dead, lying there on the prophet's bed. He went in alone, shut the door behind him, and prayed to the Lord. And he laid down on the child's body, placing his mouth on the child's mouth, his eyes on the child's eyes, his hands on the child's hands. And as he stretched out on him, the child's body began to grow warm. Elisha got up, walked back and forth across the room once, 
stretched himself out again on the child. This time the boy sneezed seven times and opened his eyes. Then Elisha summoned Gehazi, call the child's mother. And when she came in, here, take your son. She fell at his feet, bowed before him, overwhelmed with gratitude. She took her son in her arms and carried him downstairs. These two stories tell me something. They tell me that your situation is not hopeless. They tell me that our national situation is not hopeless. When you hear some people saying up, it's all going to go, we're all going to die. Okay, don't listen. It's not hopeless. And the reason is because even now, we could trust God. We could heed what God says. We could use what we have, trust in Him, and be free from debt. Be free once again. Be lenders instead of borrowers. All right? And so in light of what God has to say about lending and borrowing, I want to ask some questions. And here's the first one. Regarding loans that you may have taken out or money you may have borrowed, what assumptions have you made about your future? What are you assuming about the price of your home, for example? Or about a better paying job down the road? Are these assumptions wise? Um, Crown Financial Ministries will give advice, and they'll say in classes, and I've been through one, they advise only to borrow for business, education, or a home mortgage. Now, that's, that's not from the Bible. That's Crown Financial Ministries, okay? But what they're saying is be wise about what you borrow and understand that the more you borrow, the lower your boat's going to sit in the water. So it's all about risk, all right? And we want to have light boats. We want to have boats that are very buoyant. All right, here's another question. What are you most afraid of right now? What are you most afraid of right now? When Gallup just concluded a poll within the last week and they asked Americans this, what Americans said was they're most afraid of is stagnant wages. They're afraid that what they're making today is in essence what they'll be making two to five years from now. That's what Americans told Gallup this week. But what are you most afraid of? Is debt making that fear worse? Here's, here's what I want us to do together. Let's get out of debt, all right? Let's get out of debt. Let's lighten these boats and let's have some buoyancy in your boats, in our boat of generations financially, and in America. Let's stop borrowing, okay? So step number one, stop borrowing, okay? And you got to feel the unction to do this, and it's got to be really important. So I brought something very precious to me with me today. This is my Visa card. Hello, Mr. Visa. Hello, how are you? Oh, Max, you know how you've been wanting that new kayak? I've got a $10,000 credit limit. Really? Really? That's awesome. Hello, Mr. Visa. Guess what Mr. Visa's going? No! Kapow! All right? Some of you, before you leave church today, should open up your wallet, come up here, and shred Mr. Discover card, shred Mr. MasterCard. That was my one Visa card. He's gone now, okay? You should consider doing this. Why is this important? Because if you want to lighten the load, you got to quit putting stuff in the boat, right? <laughs> if you want the boat to get lighter, you got to quit adding to it. So shredding Mr. Visa is a good first step, all right? So let me give you some practical advice, and I've stolen this from Dave Ramsey in Crown Financial Ministries. Step... First thing you can do, apart from shredding your credit cards, is pray. Pray. If God cared about that widow, 
If God cared about that woman from Shunem, God cares about you. They weren't any better than you are. So if God cares for you, tell him what you need. Hey, God, boom. One of the things Jenny and I found is that when we started giving back to God on a regular basis, we had money at the end of the month. It's a spiritual secret that we learn. But whatever, start praying. Ask God. Tell him what you need and trust him to provide as you're taking steps of faithfulness. Step number two, sell. Dave Ramsey puts it this way. Sell everything you can find that's not bolted down. Sell so much the kids think they're next. Right? (laughs) Sell so much the kids are worried. Are you coming in my room, Mommy? (laughs) You know, and they've got their toys. We're like, is this okay? Um, I knew a guy three years ago. He had some medical bills. He was a kayaker. Do you know what he sold? His boat. But he got out of debt. And now he can afford to buy a better boat because he's out of debt. But he got rid of his boat and couldn't kayak on his own for three, four years. He thought he was going to die, but he didn't die. He's not has a better boat, okay? Another step number three, work. Extra work, part-time work, temporary work. Um, I noticed in Nicholasville when I went into Office Depot, they said early morning stalkers needed. And I'm not talking about the kind of stalkers that are outside your window peering in. I'm talking about stalkers. I'm talking about stalkers that take product and put it on a shelf. Those kind of stalkers, okay? Early morning stalkers needed. Is it ideal to be working your, your tail off, you know, 24 hours a day, seven days a week? No, but for a short period of time, it could generate some extra money. All right, so pray, sell, work, and then the debt snowball. You've heard us talk about this at Generations before if you've been here. Here's how the debt snowball works if you've never heard of it. If you've got lots of debts, the experts will say, well, look at the interest rates and da-da-da and pay the high interest rates off first. And da-da-da. Dave Ramsey says, no, 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 don't do that. And, and he says this, if you were good at math, you wouldn't be where you are. It's not an issue of math. List the debts, smallest to biggest, and you go after that smallest debt, and you attack it, and you pay it down, and you pay it down until it's gone, and then when it's gone, you know what happens to you? You get energized, and you're like, we killed it. It's off the boat. It's gone. Woohoo! Let's go after the next one, and then you take all the money that you were throwing at that one, and you throw it at the next one, and it becomes a snowball that gets bigger as it's tackling the larger debts, Um, and here's the caveat. We're talking about debt today. We're talking about buoyancy today. But if you don't have a $1,000 emergency fund, this message is not for you. You got to start there. You got to have $1,000 set aside. Remember what we talked about last week. So that's baby step number one, as Dave Ramsey would say. Why? Because Murphy happens and you want to be prepared. You can't charge it, right? Because you're not going to do that anymore. So you got to have the cash on hand to be able to weather little storms. All right? So here's why this is important. Today, in America, in major real estate markets, in New York City, in Los Angeles, all over the state of Florida, in Las Vegas, there is a real estate bonanza. You're like, I haven't heard about this. Yeah, CNN money, you can read about it. Here's the bonanza. There are people walking in and buying very expensive homes, lavish apartments that overlook Central Park. They're just not Americans. They're foreigners who have cash. And they're coming to America right now because, (laughs) poor 
bargains. And they sniffed and smelled the bargains from all the way over to India, all the way over to Hong Kong and China. And they've coming in and they're buying real estate like no tomorrow. My brother tells me Vegas is going fast. He lives in Las Vegas. He says, man, the number of people from not from America that's buying up property is crazy. I'm like, that's not crazy at all. They got cash. <laughs> okay? So you want to stay afloat, you got to lighten the load. And that's, that's a key principle today, right? Buoyancy. The lighter the load, the more the buoyancy. What would it be like, for those of you who have kids, what would it be like someday when your kids go off to college to write a check and buy them a car? Or write a check for tuition? What would it be like when your kids are ready to buy their first home and you give them $10,000 for a down payment? Wouldn't that feel amazingly awesome? All right? What would it be like to take a trip and go wherever you want and not even blink an eye and just write a check? What would that feel like? That would be amazing. What would it feel like when you're aware of kingdom stuff that people are doing, whether it's in your church or young life, and there's a need and you go, yeah, let me just write a check. My in-laws church, they needed a new organ a few years ago. And the organ was going to cost $100,000. And they were going to raise money for it. One guy in the congregation goes to the pastor, makes a meeting, gets out his checkbook and says, I just love blessing people because, you know, I've got buoyancy. God's blessed me. What do you need? We need $100,000. We've got to raise the money. There you go. Buy the organ. Kapow. I mean, that's an amazing feeling to be able to do those kind of things. I want that for you down the road. I want to return to Deuteronomy chapter 28. The Lord will send rain at the proper time from his rich treasury in the heavens and will bless all the work you do. You will lend to many nations, but you will never need to borrow from them. I hope, I pray that's true of our nation one day, but I hope and pray it's true of you and me and all of us much, much, much sooner.